I'm Damian Willis, and this is The Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News, a podcast in which we attempt to pull back the curtain on our reporting process while diving deeper into some of the biggest stories of the week. Before we begin, we want to let listeners know that this week's podcast discusses sexual assault. If you or someone you know experiences sexual violence, you can find local support via La Pignon's 24-hour crisis hotline at 575-526-3437 or go to www.lapignon.org. This week, we're joined by Abriana Morales. When she was 15, Abriana was sexually assaulted by someone she knew and trusted. That experience, navigating the legal system, the feeling of isolation and lack of resources and support, prompted her to create the Sexual Assault Youth Support Network, a community of survivors, supporters, and advocates dedicated to building a world without sexual violence where justice is restorative and healing is possible. As of today, more than 300,000 people from around the world have visited the organization's website. After high school, she went on to attend the University of New Mexico. She's currently a senior majoring in psychology and criminology with a minor in math and will graduate in two weeks. In 2022, she was selected to be a Truman Scholar, one of 58 college students throughout the country who aspire to be leaders in public service. After graduation, she plans to take a gap year to work on developing SASIN and some collaborative projects with the National Organization for Victim Assistance, including the U.S. Department of Justice Office on Violence Against Women grant to provide training and technical assistance to college campuses invested in preventing sexual assault, domestic violence, and stalking. Last week, during National Crime Victims' Rights Week, Abriana was featured in a video on the U.S. Department of Justice's Office of Justice Programs website. We'll talk to Abriana about SASIN, her experience as an advocate, how COVID-19 impacted her life in surprising ways, her future plans, and more. This week, I'm grateful to have Abriana joining us. Abriana, thanks for making time to join us today. Yeah, no, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. Why don't we begin with the hard parts? Do you want to share your story and let our listeners know what happened to set you on this path? Yeah, definitely. Um, so again, I'm Abriana and um, I'm from Las Cruces, New Mexico. And when I was 15, I was sexually assaulted by a teacher at my school. Um, and that was back in 2016. And I came forward and thankfully my parents believed me and I was able to go to the police and file a report and everything like that. But I found myself feeling really, really alone. I lost a lot of friends and dealing with you know, the social and emotional turmoil of victimization in tandem with like the difficulties of handling the legal system as both a victim and a young person. I, I really felt that I needed support from somebody like myself. Um, I was having a hard time relating to, um, you know, the other adults that were trying to help me. And of course, their help was valuable, but really more than anything, I wanted to see another 15 year old or another young person and know that they were handling that they could handle what I was going through and that it was going to be okay. 
And, you know, I turned to the internet trying to find other victims like myself and had a really, really hard time with um, finding anything. And so I decided that I wanted to create the resource that I needed to really, you know, allow other survivors like myself, other young people like myself to connect with one one another. Um, And so I started Sexual Assault Youth Support Network, or SASIN, back when I was 15. And uh, really, it's an organization devoted to supporting, empowering, and connecting youth sexual assault survivors and those that support them. And it all started off with one, like, big project, which is our I Am series. And so we take photos of survivors holding signs saying, I'm a sexual assault survivor and I am, and then it's blank. And they can write a word, a phrase, sentence, whatever, that allows them to demonstrate that their victimization doesn't define them. And really the photo series itself shows the intersectionality of survivorship. And uh, ever since then, I've been, you know, working as the founder of SASIN, sharing my story, advocating for policy to support survivors in our state, um, and really doing my best to, um, you know, support survivors like myself, what I set out to do when I was 15 years old. And what has the response been from around the country and and, uh, elsewhere? The response to SASIN has been overwhelming and overwhelmingly positive. Um, Really, when I started at 15, it began with a Facebook post in the Las Cruces Community Watch Facebook group. And uh, basically just me saying that I was a survivor, that I wanted to start this support group and um, that I wanted to do this I Am series idea that I had. And the post blew up hundreds of likes and comments, um, hundreds of messages to me personally um, from young people and adults alike, sharing their stories as survivors, you know, some of them for the first time in their lives and really feeling excited that there was a potential for change, um, not only here in Las Cruces, but beyond in terms of, you know, dealing with survivors and dealing with um, victimization in a supportive way rather than a shameful one. Um, and you know, since then, it's really just kind of been more of the same. Um, I think that Sason has had over 300,000 people view our website over the course of the past few years. Wow. And uh, those from countries all over the world, um, we have actually been featured in news in India. And, uh, you know, it's, it's amazing to see that an idea that I had um, in my bedroom in Las Cruces, New Mexico, has been able to impact and reach people all over the globe. Abriana, you reported your assault, but the case was dismissed with prejudice after five years in the legal system over speedy trial concerns, due in no small part to the COVID-19 pandemic. That's really driven a lot of your research as an undergrad. Can you tell us more about that? Absolutely. Yeah. No, um, since my time at UNM or during my time at UNM, I've gotten really immersed into undergraduate research and research as a tool for advocacy. And uh, most of my research projects thus far have been really directly inspired by or um, driven by my experiences as a, as a victim navigating the legal system during the COVID-19 pandemic. So I'm a McNair scholar at UNM, and I was working with a faculty mentor on a project to examine how the COVID-19 pandemic and more specifically, you know, Zoom and, you know, 
masking and whatnot has affected the ways that criminal justice professionals, legal officials, attorneys, uh, victim advocates, and law enforcement collaborate and interact with one another and how they interact with victims and how that um, impacts their ability to facilitate procedural justice. And procedural justice is just a fancy word for the, you know, perceived fairness of legal proceedings. And, uh, you know, I've had the chance to interview um, both attorneys and uh, victim advocates and get to hear their perspectives on how the, the pandemic impacted their jobs and their abilities to effectively interact with victims. And really, it's been super interesting and enlightening to see that, you know, collecting all these perspectives can kind of create a more informed understanding of you know, how things like the pandemic impact, you know, not only the day-to-day life, you know, all of us are masking and going around and doing things differently, but also the lives of victims and the legal system itself. Several years ago, I worked in the DA's office in Las Cruces. And I know that, that, you know, people don't think much about the roles of victim advocates, but so much of the work they do is First of all, it's so important, but it's also important for them to be able to establish a relationship with the victim. And that, of course, is best done in person, face to face and over a period of time. You know, that's a hard connection to make. And it happens often at the worst time in someone's life. So Mm -hmm. I can imagine that if you're trying to do it over Zoom or you're trying to do it with face masks um, and six feet apart, that can be a a hard thing to do, a hard connection to, to build. Oh, absolutely. In my talking with victim advocates in in particular, um, the stories that I heard about having to try and console someone or connect with someone through a plexiglass like shield, basically not being able to, you know, hold their hands or help them or give them a hug when they needed it. um, It's really quite heartbreaking. And like you're, like you said, uh, Victim advocates um, do a really, really important thing for victims and come across and their paths across at a very painful time in a victim's life. And that connection is so, so important because, you know, it establishes rapport and trust and allows the victim to kind of feel like they have a person there for them, an advocate, I guess, literally um, in a system that often doesn't feel very um doesn't feel like it's made for victims. And uh, yeah, so the pandemic has been really impactful in that way. Yeah, it can the the system can feel very kind of rigid and methodical without building that human connection. What else did you find in your research? I mean, that's kind of the core of it is that the, you know, the interpersonal connections that come with working with victims are really the key to a procedurally just or perceived like perceived to be fair um, experience. Um, So there's different principles of procedural justice, you know, dignity and respect, voice or the opportunity to like share your perspective, neutrality, trustworthiness um, and transparency. And, uh, you know, all of those things together are what allow people, you know, not just victims, but you know, anyone interacting with the legal system to feel that their experience was fair and that they were heard and that it was a supportive and you know, satisfactory experience, regardless of a conviction happening or not. And, uh, you know, besides the already existing things that victims face that kind of you know, hurt their chances of having a procedurally just, just experience, like the lack of ability to speak out um, and have a you know perspective or voice in proceedings. 
the pandemic really just kind of prevented um, that rapport building, that trust building between victims and attorneys, victims and victim advocates that allows them to kind of feel like they have a place within the system. And then there was also a lot of issues that were identified with accessibility to the courts. Um, you know, things were on Zoom. And so it was hard for people to, um, if they didn't have a stable internet connection, being able to access Zoom hearings or telephonic hearings. Um, was difficult. And then um, another thing was uh, language barriers. Uh, one of the people that I interviewed mentioned that while they did have translators available, it was often so difficult for them to effectively connect them to the telephonic hearings that it really just presented a large issue for those that you know didn't have English as their first language navigating the legal system. Right. If Zoom's not clunky enough, throw a translator into the mix. Exactly. Uh, you're, you're back in Cruces this weekend for an event. Tell us about that. Yeah. Um, so one of um, Sason's board members, her name is Ida D'Antonio Hangen. She is a, a professor at MSU, and she runs the uh, Humans for Humans anti-trafficking group on campus. They're advocates against human trafficking and you know, raise awareness for it. And they've been going around to different schools and putting on presentations about you know, trafficking, how to you know, notice it, what to do if you notice it. And uh, they're putting on an event at NMSU today to you know, present uh, human trafficking. And uh, they've invited me to represent Saison to speak a bit about uh, victimization, getting youth involved, and the importance of really having youth as the part of the conversation around awareness, prevention, and response to sexual violence and things like human trafficking. And we should note for our listeners, we're recording this on Friday, April the 28th. Can you explain to our listeners what a Truman Scholar is? Uh, that's a, a another scholarship that you have. And share a little bit about what your experience has been like. Oh, definitely. Um, so a Truman Scholar is you know, a recipient of the Harry S. Truman uh, Scholarship uh, in the namesake of our president, President Harry Truman. And basically, uh, whenever um, Truman passed away in the late 1970s, he wanted to establish a living memorial, you know, to you know, rather than a statue or something, but he wanted to provide a scholarship to encourage other young people to get engaged in public service. And so since 1977, I believe uh, we've had a class of 50 or so Truman scholars from all throughout the country um, who are young public servants um, engaging in leadership and you know showing a dedication to a career in public service. And uh, there Recipients of the Truman Scholarship receive $30,000 in graduate school funding, um, as well as a like summer internship opportunity in Washington, D.C. And so I received the Truman Scholarship this past year um, in 2022, and I was the sole recipient from New Mexico. And uh, it's really been a fantastic experience so far, although I'm taking a gap year before going to uh, graduate school. I uh, you know that money will be there for me, which is really, really helpful as I pursue graduate degrees. And really, more than anything, what I valued about being a Truman Scholar is the connections to all of the other Truman Scholars. Um, we kind of like call ourselves a you know, quote unquote true fam. Um, and, um, you know, we all get along, we all connect with one another and it's a really, really special experience, um, to bond and be supported by so many people in so many different walks of life. Since you arrived at UNM in what, 2019, you've been involved in so much. I get press releases from UNM and I've lost track of how many times they are about you. In 2020, you participated in a project called Stories of Resilience in New Mexico. Can you 
tell us about the idea behind that project? Definitely. That was actually my first ever research experience. Um, so back in 2020, I started working with um, a group of graduate students and uh, professionals at the American Planning Association's New Mexico chapter and the New Mexico Resiliency Alliance to come together and kind of examine the uh, concept of resilience in light of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so what we did was we did interviews and really kind of collected stories from people all over the state of New Mexico about how the pandemic has impacted their lives and you know how they've been resilient and more so how their experience has kind of influenced their notion of resilience. And from those stories, we generated policy and practice recommendations for, you know, city planners, uh, legal officials or politicians to really think about the ways that we can build resilient communities in the face of crises like the COVID-19 pandemic in the future. It's so fascinating to me because I also went to UNM, but your experience has been so different from mine. To begin with, yours has been upended by the pandemic, and yet (laughs) you've seemed to make more out of your college experience, to get more out of your college experience, almost in spite of it, or maybe because of it? Yeah, I mean, I think that, I don't know, things have kind of always been that way. I'm, you know, dealing with the sexual violence really kind of upended my high school experience. And really more than anything, I just wanted to get out there and do what I could to make a difference. And the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, really upended my college experience. Uh, I didn't go to campus for what, a year, two years. And really what I wanted was to, you know, help people in our community. And I thought that Stories of Resilience Project was a really great way to, you know, despite, you know, Zoom and everything getting in the way of actual, you know, traditional interpersonal interaction, getting the chance to see how strong New Mexicans could be um, and really tell their stories and give them a voice through the research was a super, super empowering thing for me. And then once we got back on campus, um, I think I was just kind of determined to do everything that I couldn't have done while I was off campus. And uh, that's just been my UNM experience. To that end, it seems like you did very much the same with your sexual assault and uh, the subsequent delays in prosecution. You're kind of an expert at making lemonade, it seems. Where does where does that come from? I honestly don't know. Um, I wonder that myself sometimes. But I think that, you know, as I look back at, you know, when I started Saison and being 15 and the, you know, kind of repeated sense of, you know, recognizing a problem and wanting to fix it. I think it's it's really just that is I see problems places. I see things that I think should be different. And I guess I just don't have the. I don't know, mechanism in my brain to tell me like not to just throw myself into something to fix it. (laughs) So um, that's just kind of what I do. I, you know, as a researcher, as a college student, I've come across a lot of, you know, issues in terms of like effective representation and research. And I've noticed that there's a lot of disconnect between research and policy or researchers and policymakers, and even more so between researchers, policymakers and community members. A lot of the times we're all working to 
address or examine the same issues, but we are all coming at it from different sides and aren't effectively communicating. And so, you know, that's a that's a problem. That's a lemon, I suppose. And, uh, you know, having been active in policy, in research and in community organizing, I'm now really, really passionate about uniting all three of those research, practice and policy um, in service of sexual violence survivors. And so that's like, I think, just the next big thing um, is, you know, seeing this problem and dedicating my life to fixing it. It's funny because the Stories of Resilience project was organized in part through the School of Architecture at UNM. And that's not even a thing that you're really, that's part of your life, you know? Um, but it, it's apparently a, a project that you found fascinating and just kind of threw yourself into it. Yeah, yeah. No, I came across, it was a, because they're looking for student researchers. And so I came across the you know, job posting and I thought that the subject matter was really interesting. And I, you know, it was kind of incidental that, to, well, to me at least, that it was being put on by the American Planning Association slash, you know, UNM School of Architecture. Because that, to be completely honest with you, I didn't know what planning was <laughs> when I applied. <laughs> um, still not entirely clear. But the thing is, you know, what mattered to me and what matters to me about research and, um, you know, different, you know, academic pursuits even is that, you know, the boundaries of disciplines can be so flexible and, you know, kind of irrelevant. If we have important questions to ask and we have the abilities to ask them and work with other scholars to, you know, examine that. I don't really see any sort of barriers between, you know, I'm happy to go talk to the people at the School of Architecture or even, you know, biology or whatever else, you know, we're all doing our best to, you know, help people answer questions. And I have no problem working with anyone on that. I just realized we haven't really talked about what has landed. I I've, just in the past week, I saw you were on KUNM, you were on KOAT, talking about NOVA's Youth Advocacy Corps program. You were recently uh, named the program director. Can you tell us about that and how you became involved? Yeah, yeah, I know that's I'm I'm so happy to be the program manager for the Youth Advocacy Corps. Um, so I've been working with NOVA on the Youth Advocacy Corps now since January. I'm doing part time before I go full time in June. And really, um, so the, this is a project funded by the Office for Victims of Crime. And essentially what we're doing is working to elevate the next generation of youth leaders in victim advocacy um, in partnership with campuses, um, student survivors and uh, researchers. Um, so, you know, like the Peace Corps or Teach for America, sure. like those kind of support programs. Um, essentially, it's like that on a smaller scale and just by training victim advocates. So we will be selecting um, 18 student fellows from five from each of our five um, partner universities and essentially giving them training, credentialing to be victim advocates, and then giving them a year-long um, community placement or field placement in a community victim services agency. And uh, the really exciting thing is we've you know, been really intentional about our partnership and uh, partnering with minority serving institutions just to ensure that, you know, students that come from marginalized communities are able to embrace this opportunity. And even more so because, you know, marginalized communities are the most dispropor disproportionately impacted by victimization, but yet are the most underrepresented in victim services. And so we really want to do our best to make sure that we both diversify the field of victim advocacy, but allow folks that you know, often haven't been effectively represented in the system to become represented. And this is organized through the uh, U.S. Department of Justice, right? 
Yes, it's a the Office of Victims of Crime is a sub like a sub office of the DOJ. So, Aubriana, what's next for you? Oh gosh. Um, well, I mean, the next three years are working on the Youth Advocacy Corps and working with NOVA, um, which I'm very, very excited about. Um, I'll be staying here in New Mexico in Albuquerque, working remotely on that. Um, and I also am working on some research um, examining children's abilities to identify grooming behaviors um, in Albuquerque as well. So I'll be working on that research project, working with NOVA on the Youth Advocacy Corps. And of course, um, still continuing my work with SESAN, um, putting on events like the one happening at NMSU today, um, doing our best to continue growing the organization and supporting survivors. And, you know, beyond the next three years, um, the best I can say is that I hopefully will be going to graduate school. Um, that's the plan. <laughs> I, well, the money's there if you need it. Um, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> I, at one point, you were uh, looking at also possibly pursuing a, a JD, a law degree. Yeah, that's still in the cards. Um, so I want to do like a JD, PhD, so like a law degree and a PhD. And I'm thinking either psychology or criminology. I'm not entirely sure. But yeah, that's kind of part of the plan uh, tentatively is to finish up this job and my research and you know, some of my projects here and then go off and get one or both of those degrees. And over the summer, you're going to Washington, D.C., right, to wrap up your Truman Scholarship with a, an internship. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So the um, the Truman Scholarship Organization puts on this thing called Summer Institute every year for the you know previous years um, incoming Truman Scholars. So I was I got my scholarship last year, and so this year is my Summer Institute. And so they put all fifty seven of us in the dorms at George Washington University and help facilitate you know, getting internships and jobs over the summer, so that we can experience what it's like to live in D.C., work in D.C., and be with our fellow. Um, as I said earlier, quote unquote, true fam. And uh, we also have like networking events that we do over the summer and get to you know hear from you know public service um, officials about their work and how they got involved. And really, it's going to be super exciting. I'm going to continue doing my NOVA work, the Youth Advocacy Corps, just from D.C. But I am I'm so looking forward to spending time with my fellow Trumans. Um, it's going to be a great time. And I was just in D.C., uh, yesterday for a symposium put on by the Officer Victims of Crime for National Crime Victims Rights Week. And so um, I didn't get to see very much. I just saw the Washington Monument outside a window. But um, it really, really excited me about going back um, later in this later in the spring. What advice do you have for survivors of sexual assault who feel like they're alone, don't have anyone to talk to or won't be believed to those who may be struggling under the, the weight of that secret? The best I can say is that, you know, I believe you. I hear you. I know how that feels and I know how awful it is. But to know that you know, you're not alone. You know, it's there's a great, great network of advocates and survivors and other supporters out there to support you. You just have to find them and you have to believe that they're there. Um, you know, there's organization organizations like um, SASIN, uh, like NOVA, like the Youth Advocacy Corps that demonstrate that there is a change in our, you know, in our society. Um in the you know victim advocacy movement generally to really do our best to reach survivors that feel alone and ensure that in the future there are no survivors that feel alone is there anything you'd like to add 
that we haven't talked about today? Um, not that I can think of other than just, you know, I, you know, I've been looking back and reflecting a lot the past week or so, just because it's national crime victims rights week about, you know, my path from being 15 and a high school student and starting SASIN to being here with all the research and, you know, going to DC and whatnot. And I just want to say that, you know, like, Thank you to the Las Cruces community. I really, it's, I feel odd saying that, but um, I don't know the support of the community. Like I mentioned earlier on that Facebook post and, you know, really getting Sason a platform and some recognition was the, was the start of it all. And really none of this could be possible without the support of my fellow you know, Las Cruces to, you know, believe survivors and support survivors. And uh I don't know. I just want to say thank you. And that, you know, despite the fact that I'm in Albuquerque and, you know, might be going to DC or might leave New Mexico sometime in the future that Las Cruces is always my home. And I'm so thankful for the support that I received here. You know, it's strange in some ways. So often we hear survivors say that I'm not going to let this define me. Mm-hmm. You know, this, this, horrible thing that happened to me. I'm not going to let it define me. And in some ways, in the very best ways, actually, you have let it define you. It has motivated you to do so many of the things that you have have done so far and are, are trying to do with the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah. I've actually been thinking about that a lot because I you know the I Am series idea was really kind of rooted in this idea that uh, you know, showing that sexual violence or victimization doesn't define you that, and that starting you're facing, allowed to own it. Yeah, exactly. That's actually a really good way of putting it allowed to own it. And, uh, yeah, no, it's really interesting. I kind of went into this with this idea that I wouldn't let it define me. And I find that more and more that it has, but I like the way that you just put it where it's, you know, rather than something that's defined me, it's something that I have, you know, owned and taken in to be a part of myself that is motivating. So, yeah, no, I think that's I think that's the key. How you said it, just you've, you've made lemonade and, and, be, and being comfortable and not ashamed about it and doing your best to make a difference you know, in spite of it. Aubriana, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad to have the chance to, you know, talk with you and you know do this. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Reporter's Notebook. We also have a newsletter sharing reporter stories about, well, about how we report stories. You can find all of our reporting in the Las Cruces Sun News. A special thanks goes out to Abriana Morales for joining us this week. Once again, if you or someone you know experiences sexual violence, you can find local support via La Pinon's 24-hour crisis hotline at 575-526-3437 or online at www.lapinon.org. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, and many of the places you find your favorite podcasts. This has been the Reporter's Notebook from the Las Cruces Sun News. I'm your host, Damian Willis. This week's podcast was written and produced by me. You can also find all of our local reporting brought to you daily by reporters who live and work in Las Cruces 
at www.lcsun-news.com. For all of us at The Sun News, thank you for the privilege of your time.